Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 118 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and this week I saw Hannah Dunleavy in the face. We had tea, we had cake, we watched Hamilton and it was beautiful. Exciting. It was. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and yesterday I invited my brother to stay after the success of Mickey Noonan's visit. (laughs) And he said, and I quote, only if you don't make me do a load of jobs. And I mentioned this only because I was helping him carry a sofa at the time. Ah, the joy of siblings. Yeah, I saw my sister. She didn't ask me for anything. <laughs> Later on, I chat with broadcasting legend Jenny Murray about overeating, yo-yo dieting and the very personal relationship between psychology, science and the hunger to be thinner. I speak to MP and woman who gets shit done, Stella Creasy, (laughs) about why she's trying to get misogyny classed as a hate crime. And in DDD, we watch Left Behind. Holy fucking shit. That's my review, by the way. (laughs) Nonsense. We'll be baptising Hannah live on air later. (laughs) But first, an incredible legacy, a distinct lack of childcare and track and trace creeps. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Stink. Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we're absolutely not buying into the theory that Boris Johnson's baby is fake. Although Jen's baby, not seen her for ages. No, she just wanted a long holiday, didn't she? (laughs) It's working out well for her. Some sad news at the weekend, as it was announced that US politician, civil rights legend and the last living speaker at the 1963 March on Washington, John Lewis, had died of cancer aged 80. If you don't know who Lewis is, and the muted reaction to his death in the UK suggests you might not, there's no better time to find out what a hero he was. And hero is not a word I use lightly, but if anyone on earth deserved to be called it, it was Lewis. Born into a large family in Jim Crow, Alabama, he was spurred into action by the bus boycott of 1955 and met Rosa Parks two years later when he was 17. A year later, he met Martin Luther King and as a young student organised sit-ins at segregated counters in Nashville. He was one of the original 13 Freedom Riders who tested segregation law on interstate buses. He marched with Dr King at Selma. At every stage he was abused, beaten and arrested. In fact, if you put his name into Google Images, you'll find dozens of photos of him thrown into the back of vans, bloodied but defiant. King and Lewis's non-violent protests weren't universally popular at the time, or over the intervening 50 years, and in recent months I've seen much criticism again of the idea that peaceful protest is too passive a way to deal with prejudice. And while I'm not going to tell any minority group how to conduct their business, I've seen it repeated by white anti-racist activists, and I am in a position to tell them they should get off Twitter and hit the history books. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, Google. There was nothing passive about what Lewis and co was doing. It took courage, fortitude and extraordinary faith in their cause. Back in Google Images, you'll find a photo of Lewis and fellow Freedom Rider James Wirg, covered in blood after a savage beating in Montgomery, Alabama. A beating that left Wirg with long-term health complications. That, my friends, is white allyship. Putting your life on the line is not passive. Talking shit on Twitter about the tactics of the civil rights leader as a white armchair activist, I'd argue, very much is. But back to Lewis and those photographs. In among them, you'll find a photo from 2017. Back when Trump was first in office, he instituted a hasty ban on travel from six countries, causing chaos at US airports as US citizens and visiting family members found themselves trapped in a no-man's land. And you'll see Lewis, by then in his 70s and a representative for Georgia, sitting in a waiting room at Atlanta Airport late on a Saturday night because people might need his help. And they did. They always did. What a remarkable legacy to leave. That's a really lovely eulogy. Yeah, what a guy. We are currently living in a world where I read the subheader... Facing a feared interviewer, President Trump ended up insisting that identifying an elephant proved his mental capacity. (laughs) And I I thought, yeah, fair enough. Must be Monday. (laughs) It seems very little has the power to surprise anymore. 
And so the government's continued neglect of the issue of childcare as it forges forward in its plan to get back to something closer to normal life by Christmas is hardly a shocker. But it should be. The childcare sector is in crisis and I'm not handing out any prizes for those who can guess who will be most adversely affected as this continues. Spoiler, it's women and poor people. Oh, I was going to say, is it Tory MPs? <laughs> oh, it's a good guess, Hannah, but it is women and poor people. <laughs> like I said, absolutely no prizes. As Boris Johnson earmarks August the 1st as the date for millions of workers to stop working from home and return to offices... So that's just as schools in England close for the summer. No support has been offered for the childcare sector and those who desperately need it. Leader of the opposition Keir Starmer said, Parents got a back-to-work notice on Friday just as the summer holidays began, but they got no support for structured activities, no summer catch-up schemes and no support for a childcare sector on its knees. If we're going to reopen our society and economy safely and successfully, we need the public to have confidence in the government's advice. <laughs> that was me. That was me, not Starmer. He's much more professional. <laughs> he was really holding it in. <laughs> I bet. And we need proper support for children to learn and for parents to get back to work. Sophie Walker, Chief Executive of Young Women's Trust, a feminist organisation working to achieve economic justice for young women, also highlighted the adverse effect a return to work without care provision will have on women, saying carers and those needing care, vulnerable older people, disabled people, those who need to keep shielding, cannot just drop everything and go to the office. We are concerned that women risk finding themselves lower down the pecking order to their male colleagues who are able to return to the office. Because, yeah, as it stands, the government is rolling out yet another one-size-fits-all approach, And a bit like with PPE, that one size tends not to fit women. (sighs) I'm going to have to work on my variety of disappointed noises, aren't I? Uh, Yeah, next time we have a week where there's like a Zoom cast. Yeah. That's your job. You've got to come up with some decent disappointed noises. What about, ah, shucks? (laughs) (laughs) An audible fist shake. Grr. Oh, that was good. I like that one. Yeah. Yeah. There was good news for the family and supporters of Shamima Begin last week when a Court of Appeal decision allowed the 20-year-old to return to the UK to challenge the Home Office's move to revoke her British citizenship. The government says it will fight the decision to allow Begum, who left London aged 15, to join Islamic State. Earlier this year, the Special Immigration Appeals Commission ruled that Begum, currently living in a Kurdish refugee camp, had not been illegally rendered stateless as she was entitled to Bangladeshi citizenship as her parents were born there. Speaking via Tasnimi Akunji, a lawyer, the family said, and I quote, we understand there is still a long road ahead. And boy, is there. Yeah. Putting aside the fact that Begum was effectively groomed as a child and has experienced the loss of three children in the intervening five years. In fact, putting aside any sympathy you may or may not have for her individual circumstances, the major question remains, should the UK be able to revoke anyone's citizenship? If you believe that Begin should be punished for her actions, let's have at it. Bring her back to the UK, try her, and convict her of whatever crime she has proven to have committed, and jail her if that's what the law demands. But if you think making her the problem of another country of which she can gain citizenship, albeit in this case a country in which supporters claim she faces the death penalty, if you think that's a deterrent to anyone else thinking of running off to join ISIS, you're missing a few key points. Firstly, this is a punishment only applicable to someone who can claim citizenship of another country. In other words, second or third generation immigrants. So it is, by definition, racist. Mm. And there's nothing so easy to exploit in the recruitment of fresh meat as the idea that they will always be different to real British people. Secondly, in making someone like Begum the problem of another country, it fails to tackle the question of why she was able to be radicalised in the first place. There is an opportunity here to learn something about why young women are often drawn towards dangerous ideologies, be that Islamic State or the far right, or cults, or internet cliques promoting anorexia. It happens every day. Let's not put our hands over our ears and pretend that it doesn't. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more with you there. It's interesting, isn't it? That whole, oh, she's a problem, so we're going to disown her, and the inherent racism in that. Yeah, 
Because if I did it, would they send me back to Ireland? I mean, at the moment, mate, that might be a blessing for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got to apply for that passport. <laughs> do you fancy a bit of good news? Oh, please, 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 please. Of please. course you do. It's a big cheer for the Centre for Women's Justice, or CWJ, as its tireless campaigning alongside other privacy and human rights organisations has resulted in the Police and Crown Prosecution Service scrapping digital data extraction forms for rape cases. Known as digital strip searches, the controversial digital data extraction consent forms give the police and the CPS the right to rifle through years' worth of complainants' digital history, which has no relevance to the allegations made. Failure to sign one of these more often than not leads to a case being dropped. Given they're predominantly applied to survivors of rape or sexual assault, they disproportionately impact on women and act as a barrier to justice. The announcement they're being dropped follows a legal challenge brought by CWJ last year for two women, Olivia and Courtney, and they are fake names, which argued that the use of these forms was unlawful, discriminatory and led to excessive and intrusive disclosure requests. Courtney said, I welcome the announcement by the NPCC because for the first time I feel like there is hope that victims of sexual violence will no longer have to make the choice between privacy or justice. That is good news. It is, isn't it? You didn't oversell that. I didn't oversell it. (laughs) No. I mean, sometimes we do oversell it when it's like, hey, it's good news, but largely only for otters. Um, (laughs) This is generally good news. Surely good news for otters is good news for everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, more of that next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we examine something supposedly designed for good and take bets on how long it took for it to be abused by entitled men. Hey. <laughs> so yeah, who had one-to-one odds against a man using contact tracing to creep on a woman? Anyone? A young woman, pub-goer and Twitter user, posted that having enjoyed a drink at a boozer where she had, in line with track and trace, had to give her name and contact details, she was pretty miffed to receive a message from the barman that served her asking her out. A message that began, I'm really sorry for messaging. I definitely didn't use a track and trace then to find you. Uh, sure. Sure. If you've got to apologise for doing something in the middle of doing it, maybe just chill your boots and don't bother. Anyway, it turns out that in news that will surprise precisely fuck all of you, dear listeners, the UK government's track and trace mechanism takes no account of gender which probably has absolutely nothing to do with how male-dominated cabinet decisions are around coronavirus and, well, everything else. Right? Hmm. Mm -hmm. The Department of Health has conceded the initiative to trace contacts of people infected with COVID-19 was launched without carrying out an assessment of its impact on privacy. But the government insists there is no evidence of data being used unlawfully. Okay. In fairness, it's not just happening in the UK. Reports reveal the same creepy, inappropriate behaviour is happening elsewhere, including New Zealand and Berlin. It does have to be pointed out, though. Since the Test and Trace programme was launched in England, its 27,000 staff have contacted more than 155,000 people who may have been infected with the virus and asked them to go into isolation. Is isolation the name of a bar? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Hey, do you want to meet me in isolation later? (laughs) All right, it's Janet. Sorry to interrupt your listening experience. If you like what we do here at Standard Issue and you want to keep hearing some excellent content made by excellent women, yeah, us, we know, you can do so by visiting our Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash Standard Issue and chucking some dollar our way. Thanks very much. Hello, I am joined on the phone by broadcasting legend Jenny Murray. Jenny, hello. Hello. Thanks so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. Your new book, Fat Cow, Fat Chance, is out now and it covers the very personal relationship that we have with food and also the psychology and science behind so many people's hunger to be thinner. So I would like to know, what made you want to write Fat Cow, Fat Chance? Well, the title is strong. (laughs) It's an eye catcher. (laughs) Um, I decided to call it Fat Cow, Fat Chance because... I think the moment the light bulb went off in my head about how people needed more information about this was when I went to a conference about obesity and a young Irish metabolic surgeon, you know, the ones who do the stomach operations, got up and started to 
speak and he said, isn't it interesting that the law covers so many different types of hate speech? You know, you're breaking the law if you call somebody out for their race, their gender, their sexuality, their disability, and he listed all the things. And he said, and what's missing from that list? And the whole audience went, oh my goodness, Mm -hmm. (laughs) obesity, of course. And I had so often, and I'm not alone in this because I know lots of other women that this has happened to, I would be walking along the road or I'd be sitting in my mini about to pull away from the lights and some bloke would stop by me or pass me on the road and say, or who ate all the pies. Really horrible, horrible things mm-hmm. that people said. And I thought, this is just not acceptable. I have to stop people doing this because you try to convince yourself, ah, you know, okay, I'm fat and I'm happy. But you're not. You're yeah. really not. And you're certainly not happy when, and it was always a bloke or a group of blokes, when they throw an insult like that at you is just, awful so that was really what prompted me to write sit down you're going to write this book and what i really wanted to inform people about was how complicated obesity is Mm -hmm. it's not as simple as eat less and move more it's much more complicated it's your metabolism it's hormonal it's genetic it's the environment It's the food industry. Such a complicated business. And I do not want to hear anybody ever again being fat shamed because the thing about fat shaming, when you say these horrible things to people and, you know, some really quite famous broadcasters have said things like, oh, you know, we have to shame these people. You shame them and and they'll go into McDonald's and they'll only have one burger instead of three. And then James Corden, bless him, came back on that so fast and said no way if fat shaming helped fat people get thin there'd be no fat kids in school yeah because the stigma that attaches to being fat is phenomenal it's incredible how much our childhood impacts our relationship with food and our relationship with our bodies how we see ourselves i mean i had comments constantly made about how i would eat someone out of house and home they'd rather have me for a week than a fortnight when i was a kid and it sticks you're very very candid about the fact that your mum had a huge effect on how you saw yourself didn't she oh she did i mean not so much when i was very little i mean I was a big baby. I wasn't a fat baby. I was nine and a half pounds when I was born. But I didn't get fat as a child. And I suspect that was because I ran around a lot. You know, I did move a lot. And also the food that we ate was completely healthy. Everything was freshly bought. My grandmother and my mother used to shop every day. My grandfather grew all the vegetables and a lot of the fruit in his garden. So everything was really fresh and really healthy. The only problem was, which I think laid down the problems that I had later in life, these two women who'd who'd lived through the Second World War and rationing when the diet was probably actually terribly good for you when you couldn't get all the things that make you fat. (laughs) I was born in 1950, post-war, rationing was going away. They had both had to leave very good jobs when they got married and had a child because that's the way it was in those days and so these two highly intelligent women were forced to be full-time housewives and so all their energy and all their love went into creating homes that were clean and creating beautiful food to feed their family so onto my plate would go vast quantities of food and I would get halfway through it. You know, Susie Allback says, oh, you know, listen to your appetite. And when you're not hungry anymore, stop. But I was never able to do that because I'd get halfway through this massive plate of delicious food, which I enjoyed. And I'd say, Mum, I can't eat anymore. I'm absolutely full. And she'd say, I spent all morning making that for you. You jolly well finish it. You need it. 
you won't grow up to be a big, strong girl if you don't tease <laughs> at all. Uh, unfortunately, she could not have been more wrong. Was there a cognitive dissonance, do you think, for your mum between her attitude towards food and feeding you and the weight that you put on? Don't ask me what was behind it. I think mother-daughter relationships are often exceedingly complex. Amen. <laughs> and I have no doubt that to some degree my mother was narcissistic and wanted her daughter to be perfect, absolutely perfect in every way. I think she was also a little bit jealous of me as well because, you know, through my teens, on the whole, I was slim and fit and looked good. The time I put on the weight when she went completely bananas was when I went to university, which is not uncommon. No. You know, we, we leave home, we go to university. I, I did put on a bit during my teenage when I started saying, oh, don't you think it would be a good idea if we had some of this white sliced bread? And, you know, we'd have Vesta curries because it sounded exotic. The food <laughs> industry started to do a lot of damage when I, was, when I was a teenager with, you know, salt and sugar, which we all now know about. But at university, you are away from home, you go to the canteen, you eat a load of chips and all the wrong kind of food, uh, you go home to your student accommodation, you eat a load of toast, you start drinking alcohol for the first time. It's very, very common that a couple of stone are put on in the first year at university. And that's exactly what happened to me. My parents had been away. They were abroad. My dad had been working in Turkey. They drove across Europe and got the ferry from Rotterdam to Hull, thinking that would be good because that's where I was at university. I could go and meet them from the ferry. They drove straight past me and eventually stopped. My dad realized it was me. And I got in the car and my father had got out and he greeted me and hugged me and all of that. I got in the back of the car. My mother, for a while, said nothing. And then she just said, good God, what's happened to you? You look like a baby elephant. And she was absolutely furious with me. You talk in the book about the diets that you've gone on over the years, and you tried pretty much everything. And the stat that keeps coming up is that 95% of people who lose weight through a diet will put it back on, if not a little bit more. I wondered how much you think weight is a question of personal responsibility. I don't think it's a question of personal responsibility at all. Mm -hmm. I think it's a disease. And I was very pleased to see this morning in the Daily Telegraph that the Prime Minister seems to agree with me. Yeah. And is now going to open up the whole question of how to deal with obesity by improving the way the NHS deals with metabolic surgery. As a young woman, I lost all that weight at university. I worked for several years, got together with David, had a couple of kids, and was fine. I mean, never skinny, but never got fat, didn't worry about getting my body back after I had the kids. But I rode horses all the time, which keeps you very fit. I did yoga. I walked a lot. I cycled a lot. I did plenty of exercise and didn't particularly eat to excess. And when the really bad time began, two things happened. My daily schedule changed. I had to get up at five o'clock in the morning because one day I went to the morning instead of being at the afternoon. And that extends your day and the number of meals you eat. And we also moved out of London, which meant I was spending four days a week in London on my own. Mm -hmm. And they were up there and I was just going home on a Thursday night for the long weekend and coming back down on Sunday. And I had a flat, a basement flat in Camden Town, which I called Wuthering Depth, <laughs> which it was. And I was lonely. You know, I had lots of friends in London, but they were occupied with their families. I would go down to the supermarket and buy easy food, stuff that I could just put in the microwave. I'd get takeaways, which <laughs> not a good idea on a regular basis. 
I became very depressed, seriously depressed, because I missed my family so much. And I just started getting fat. I put on a huge amount of weight and thought, oh, I'd better go on a diet. Did the Atkins. Lost loads of weight. Then you relax into it and you think, oh, well, I can eat a bit more normally now. And you start to put it all on again and worse. And what I wanted to explain in this book is the science behind the whole obesity question. I have no doubt I have a genetic tendency towards it. I had two extremely fat grandmas, neither of whom worried at all about being obese. But I reckon that somewhere in my dim and distant past, we had people who may have lived in an area where there was famine, and our ancestors were probably the ones who managed to hold on to as much fat as they were able to get because the ones with the genetic tendency to hold on to fat were the ones who survived. Dr. Tim Yeo uh, has definitely shown me that. The hormonal system. The hormones was fascinating. Yeah. That was new news to me. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a hormone in your stomach called a ghrelin that's the hunger hormone. Some of us have more of those than others. I clearly had lots. But the leptin is the real killer because leptin is a hormone that shoots up to the brain when you've lost a lot of weight. And it says to the brain, oh my God, she's starving, she's starving, make her eat, make her eat. And that's why at the end of a diet, when you've lost a considerable amount of weight, your body starts to tell you you're terribly hungry. You're hungry all the time. And you eat and eat and eat. And that's why you put all the weight back on again. Mm-hmm. It's not personal responsibility. It's science, I'm afraid. It's taken so long for obesity to be recognised as a disease, though. It's almost like people have been trying to resist that. I think this goes right back to, you know, the seven deadly sins. Yeah. That greed was one of the seven deadly sins. And people just assume if you're a fat person, you must be a greedy person. You know, you're greedy and you're lazy and you're fat. Well, that is really not necessarily true. You mentioned it earlier. There is a big movement right now, and it seems to have gathered a lot of pace over the last couple of years, for fat positivity in ditching those societal expectations when it comes to weight and size and just being happy being fat. Now, you have some really interesting thoughts around this, so I wondered if you could tell me why you don't quite buy into that. I would love to be able to buy into that and look at any fat woman and say, you look great, don't worry about it, it's your body, just be happy in it. But I got to 64 and I had had breast cancer and I had had both my hips replaced and I have no doubt my obesity played a huge role in both of those things. Mm -hmm. I changed my GP because my old GP, who was also fat, interestingly enough, and consequently never asked me to stand on the scales. I think we just sympathized with each other, really. The new GP, a man, quite elderly, said on the scales, 24 stone, and he said, you have got to do something about this weight. And then I was walking in the park one day with my son and sitting down every so often on a bench because my progress was slow and lumbering. And we saw a woman passing by on a disability scooter, even bigger than me, but not that much, with her two little dogs trotting along beside her. And my son, who was not fat-shaming me in any way, he was a genuinely concerned young man. And he said, Mum, if you don't do something about your weight, that, before very long, is going to be you. Mm. And he was right. Because also the new GP had given me a test for glucose tolerance and found that I was verging 
on type 2 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes is a terribly dangerous and very common disease in the overweight. It costs the National Health Service a fortune in treating it and it makes people very, very ill. So all I can say on the body positivity thing is I would love to think that there are women who are genuinely fat and happy and are not concerned with the way they look, but I want them to be concerned about the way they will feel. You, in the end, your fat chance, as you call it in the title, decided after a lot of thinking and research to go for a gastric sleeve operation. And I feel like from what you've said about the breast cancer and your hip replacements, your body has been through a lot. How do you feel about your body now? I feel perfectly fine. Good. Uh, <laughs> you know, people say, oh, God, you took the easy way out. Uh, not the easy way out. No, it doesn't sound easy at all. Put yourself into the hands of somebody with a scalpel and somebody else with an anaesthetic and be put out and have 80% of your stomach removed. Um, I, I did it because I was completely convinced by Professor Francesca Rubino, who explained everything to me and was recommended to me as the best researcher in this area and also the best surgeon. And the research that he'd done, he was the person who discovered that this kind of operation removed type 2 diabetes in the majority of people who had it. So that was one thing. I was saving myself from type 2 diabetes and I was going to lose weight. I was going to be able to be more mobile. And I feel just so much fitter. That's the important thing. So knowing everything that you know now... What is the best bit of advice that you would pass on to someone who is struggling with their weight? I would say if you need to lose a stone, then very carefully cut back on the things that you know are causing you to be fat. Mm -hmm. If you fancy a chocolate biscuit, have it, but only have the one, don't have the whole packet. Yeah. Which I know, you know, a lot of us have a tendency to do. But if it's more than that, my surgeon, Professor Rubino, said, look, for my patients, I could force them to walk around the world eating a starvation diet, and it would not help. Because if you are suffering from this disease you know it's it's not just disease it's dis-ease as well it makes you feel so uncomfortable he said when you when it gets to that stage really surgery is the best option how would you like society's attitude to change towards fat number one to understand Mm. what science is and the psychology of it you know so many people who get into this trouble are suffering real psychological problems and comfort themselves with food. And we now are beginning to understand that with the other complex eating disorder, anorexia, we've always known there was a strong psychological element in that, but we also have now discovered there's a strong genetic element in it as well. Mm -hmm. So these eating disorders are not dissimilar. They just send us in completely different directions. So people must understand how complex it is. And thank goodness, as I said, that we now seem to have politicians who are aware of it. You know, Boris may have only learned about it from ending up in the COVID-19 emergency ward, but he seems to have learned about it and and got it. And the other thing I, I, I don't just ask for, I demand, is that people being so rude to fat people. You know, kids, we know the stigma that attaches to obesity causes kids to not have any friends, never be chosen for a sporting team, drop their results.
homework or do their exams, it has a really, really profound effect on children. So fat shaming has to stop. It's dangerous too, isn't it? Because it stops a lot of people who should be going and seeking help from their GP from going and seeking help. Yeah, because they're ashamed to admit it. You know, how long did I go with my old GP where we simply never discussed our weight? Well, thank you so much for writing about it in Fat Cow, Fat Chance, which is available from all good bookshops. Where can people find you on social media? I do have a Twitter account. It's at WHJM. Thank you so much for sparing me some time and best of luck with the book. Thank you. It's been lovely to talk to you. Hello, Hannah here. I'm joined on the phone by MP for Walthamstow and woman who gets shit done, Stella Creasy. Thank you for joining us, Stella. Yeah. We're here to talk about making misogyny a hate crime. But just before I start, I wanted to ask you, There's there's been a lot of what I can only describe as, I suppose, big politics going on at the minute, Labour leadership election, whatever the hell's been going on at number 10 for the last few months. I just wondered, as a constituency MP, could you tell us what that experience has been like in the last few months? Well... <laughs> I, I'm not necessarily the best person to ask because I was technically on maternity leave with the first ever locum MP when the pandemic happened. And to be fair to my locum, she she pointed out she hadn't signed up for this. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I went back to working, but obviously partner's a key worker, so he wasn't around. So I had a small baby and a lot of very scared constituents and a team that you're trying to work remotely to help with. And it's kind of stayed like that ever since, actually. There's a lot of people who've obviously now spent a lot of time at home. So the thing that's been bugging them for some time, they've decided to write to their MP yeah. about a lot of people who have very strong views about road markings, uh, for example. <laughs> but more importantly, look, I mean, I, I represent a community where a third of people who are in employment are currently furloughed. Imagine wow. how scared they are about what's going to happen next. We've been doing a lot of work to get street homeless people, to get them somewhere safe lots of victims of domestic violence, people who were just completely forgotten by the government. Because I think that's the biggest lesson that you've learned from all of this is just what hasn't been dealt with as much as what has been dealt with. So pregnant women who are pointing out that rightly their partners can go to the pub now at six o'clock in the morning, but they still don't know if they can go to a scan or they can come to the hospital when they give birth because nobody's actually raised that as an issue that needs sorting in government. So from the outside, we're trying to raise all those issues and trying to get help and support for people whilst also dealing with the person who's like, I've spent 23 hours looking at the end of my road and I've decided that the flower beds are completely wrong and you need to do something about it. Yeah. I understand that. I think what happens often when there's a crisis is people rightly look to the people they voted for and say, right, you, you do something about this. And yeah. something like this, which came relatively quickly in its scale was 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 deeply deeply scary in terms of what could happen and so what you needed to plan for it is really overwhelming and and being able to say to people all right look we're going to try and get you an answer it may not be an answer that you like but at least then you know where you stand doesn't cut it for people who are frightened they're going to lose their jobs lose their houses you know we're almost in this kind of period of limbo right now aren't we where people there's been great some government assistance but people know it's going to come to an end and they know their bosses are starting to go well actually life isn't going to go back to normal yeah um, and we know particularly it's it's women who've been hit really hard so it, 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 when you look at the figures it's really frightening um 70 percent of part-time jobs just went at the start of the lockdown and of course that's majority women if you are a mum you are 47 percent more likely than a, a dad to have lost your job already in this crisis two-thirds of women who want to go back to work can't because they can't get childcare because at the moment there's no funding to stop nurseries going bust because you want to try and socially distance some three-year-olds yeah. good luck to you so yeah. nurseries are having to take fewer kids which means they can't make the money to stay afloat and a bit like the pregnancy thing you know these are all kind of issues that nobody's really talking about in government to fix them to be able to give people the confidence in the next six months they're not going to lose their job or end up having to hide a baby in the drawer of their office desk <laughs> that's why we need more women in the room full yeah. stop absolutely you need more women but you also need i mean I, i'm not going to let men off the hook that they should be asking the questions about childcare as well you yeah, need people to to live the lives of the people they're trying to help um, yeah i'm stuck i can't get childcare, so i'm currently proxied from parliament i can't go in and take part in debates on legislation because i can't get a nursery place for my new baby because last time i was on your show i was pregnant uh, you surprise, were. surprise it happened yeah. <laughs> and um 
I asked Jacob Rees-Mogg about this and he told me that he knew all about looking after children because he had six of them and that, you know, there would be nannies available. And you're like, mate, that's not the world. <laughs> not like the Prime Minister's just had a baby or anything. Coronavirus has has shone a really big light on the inequalities that already existed. And if you were just making ends meet or maybe you were in a, a small amount of debt at the start of lockdown, suddenly you are drowning and you know the government is kind of throwing you little little lines here and there to keep you going but fundamentally do people know what's going to happen by 2021 no they don't that's really frightening and of course they're looking to us as their mps to try and fix it and we're trying so misogyny as a hate crime tell me what you mean by that and why you chose to get involved well yeah so in the midst of all of this the one thing the government has done is to bring forward the domestic abuse bill which we've been waiting for well i mean i've been an mp for 10 years and we've been waiting for 10 years now for legislation to try and improve the support available for victims of of violence and assault and you know these things don't happen in a vacuum now look every victim of domestic violence needs support and, and, and advice and help disproportionately they are women and girls and it would be wrong if you were trying to tackle and prevent these crimes if you didn't look at the evidence and go okay so what we need to do is better understand what's causing all of this Across the country, there are five police forces that already record misogyny as a hate crime. So if someone comes forward and says this is motivated because I'm a, a woman because of my sex, they use that to track the crimes that are happening. And where that's happening, it's changing the way in which they're dealing with violence against women, including domestic abuse, serious sexual assault and rape. Um, we want every police force to do this. Two years ago, the Law Commission agreed to do a review of all hate crime to look at whether misogyny should be part of the hate crime um, sentencing system that we have in this country. They think it should do because of lockdown. The consultation on how that would work has been delayed. But this is this is coming and we want women to get that protection sooner rather than later. So we've been tabling amendments in Parliament to fast track that process. Now, the last time I saw you, which was actually you were one of the last people that I saw in the real world. Um, we <laughs> now came... we just all exist on computer screens. <laughs> exactly. We came to an event where we were talking about this and you yeah. asked us to say things to you that people might say to you in this situation. For example, yeah. aren't all those things you're talking about a crime already? Aren't the police busy enough without making up new crimes? Um, are you just really trying to restrict <laughs> free speech so in the interest of fairness What's my what then? are your answers to those questions <laughs> so look making misogyny a hate crime doesn't make any new crimes it simply recognizes the motivation behind existing crimes um, and that, what people say is oh this is about wolf whistling now look i've always said i will stop campaigning on making misogyny a hate crime when i go to the wedding as a couple where the woman gets up and says well we met because he followed me down a dark alley in a, in a van going get in the back love i want to feel your tits <laughs> I've never yet been to that wedding. Um, maybe it exists out there. But the idea that this is just about how men and women talk to each other, it's not. And actually what you find in the areas where they have started treating misogyny as a hate crime, so where they start recording this kind of hostility, it's not wolf whistling that's coming forward. It's, it's rape, it's serious sexual assault. Because what it does is it finally recognises how serious these crimes are. So, you know, actually harassment which is what wolf whistling is is already technically a crime i personally hope that the men who think that it's a charming thing to do will get with 2020 and realize that it's not um and indeed one of the things that's worrying is the evidence that in lockdown sexual harassment of women when they do go outside has, has risen yeah so i really hope that when we everyone says coming out of lockdown we've got to be a completely different society and country one of the things that we might leave behind is the idea that women can't just go about their business walk to the shops without getting hassled a crazy you know wacky idea that that is you dream up i know right now women are protected from that kind of abuse in the workplace but not in their homes or in their streets and that just seems like a gap but more fundamentally the people who oppose this who kind of say well you know if we recorded this kind of crime and we recorded these crimes as what they are which is misogynistic hate crimes we'd have to do something about it like that's the worst reason not to do it it's like don't ask, don't tell about sexual assault is not the way in 2020 we should be telling young women that their lives are going to get better. So, you know, I'm not trying to create any new crimes. I'm just calling out what's causing it so that we can prevent it. OK, so tell me how much of an uphill battle you face with this and what the rest of us can do to get involved to help you. 
So the good news is that nobody's saying no right now unless they're part of the Twitter trolls. And I always think, look, mate, give your mum back the tablet. You're in your bedroom. Go go and have a rest. (laughs) Um, But actually, what people are saying, understandably, is they want to see what the law commission is going to come up with. And And I get that. There is no reason, though, that police forces couldn't start recording the data that would help inform how we tackle violence against women by recording misogynistic hate crimes now, because, as I say, five police forces are already doing it. So the first thing any of your listeners can do is to ask their MP if they'll support measures to make sure that every police force does it. Because if there was something else that was best practice that improved the experience of victims of serious crime and your local police force wasn't doing it, wouldn't you want them to do it? And that's the question that we're asking. So asking your local police, asking your local MP to back those measures. The Law Commission is about to start consulting on how to put misogyny into the hate crime sentencing legislation. It would be great for people to take part in that and support the principles to make sure that we have an equal footing for all the protected characteristics. And I should say there is absolutely a way of doing this that is very inclusive about how people view sex and gender identity. So anyone who's concerned about that, it's not an either or. This is about making sure that people aren't being attacked and abused simply for who they are. Yeah. Also, what we can do is to start having the cultural conversation that goes with it so that it's not about minimising violence against women and saying what you're concerned about is wolf whistling. What I'm concerned about is the link between abuse and harassment of women. We know that the evidence shows that often uh, perpetrators are repeat perpetrators. So if you had that data, you could track those patterns to better prevent and detect violence against women. So asking your local police, asking your local MP to back that is about better detection of crime, which in the end makes lives better and saves money. Can we just talk briefly about the online arena, which has become even more febrile, I think, in the last few months, partly, I think, because people have been shut at home with not a lot to do and generally angry and scared about the state of the world. How will the legislation we're talking about affect how women are spoken to or talked about online? So it's an interesting issue because online and offline, hate is hate. And indeed, one of the things that uh, that treating misogyny and hate crime does is those people who face multiple challenges because of their identity. So particularly women of colour, disabled women, lesbians will get the ability not to have to pick a part of their identity. And often you'll see that online, people being targeted. You know, we we see women being targeted. We see women of colour being particularly targeted and trying to be shut down. Yeah. But actually that same abuse, those same words, those same behaviours are happening offline, too. There is a separate consultation going on about online harms. If we can be clear that misogyny is a hate crime alongside abusing people because of their religion or because of their disabilities or because of their ethnic background, then actually it should feed across into the online and the offline world. Because what we know with hate crime is that it's really the cultural change that drives about what is acceptable. So we stop asking women to find ways to navigate these experiences or to have to justify to the police that this should be taken seriously and we start getting the police internet companies the social media platforms to recognize that they are being used to you know this isn't free speech it's not free speech if 50 percent of them is living in fear mm. that as soon as they log on they're going to face a barrage of abuse for who they are rather than what they do you know I, I'm, I'm i'm all for people having a crack at me because they don't like what i do as an mp but the fact that i'm a blonde woman shouldn't be a part of it. Yeah. It often is. And now the fact that I'm a mum as well, because that's obviously you know, yeah. <laughs> another area that people will bring up. The freedom that comes from people just being able to get on and be who they are and do what they do should be online as well as offline. So, yeah, it's frustrating still in 2020, we're trying to draw this artificial division. Um, but I think getting the legislation back will drive that cultural change that matches the two together. You know, I, I've always said that it's not Twitter that makes you an idiot. It's being an idiot that using Twitter amplifies. <laughs> yeah, Twitter has the same effect on many people as booze does. It brings out a whole <laughs> new side of their personality that you didn't even know existed. Um, <laughs> do you have a hashtag that people can start using to get talking about this online? So we've been using hashtags about the various amendments legislation that your MPs could back to move this campaign forward. Um, misogyny is hate is the um, tagline. What's fantastic is there are now 22 different organisations, including Citizens UK, the Fawcett Society, the Joe Cox Foundation, Hope Not Hate, Unison, Women's Aid, Refuge, all backing this. So what I would encourage your listeners to do is to follow the Misogyny is Hate campaign and to also give a shout out to all those 
fantastic organizations like Glitch as well, who, who have yeah. a new part of the campaign. There is lots and lots of support for this outside of Parliament. As you might have seen, Parliament is pretty stuck in its ways at the moment. But with your help and your listeners' help, we can bust through and get this moving. And as I say, then women can just be free to get about their business and post those kitten pics or go shopping or just hang out with their mates at socially distanced and appropriate variety ways without thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to get attacked. That is the dream, Stella. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> well, the dream, the dream is the kitten pictures and the socially distanced and ice cream all together. But, you know... <laughs> That is what Martin Luther King inspired me. (laughs) Uh, Thanks so much for your time, Stella. No worries. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disaster. Dunleavy, what the... What the fuck? What the fuck? (laughs) Yeah. This week... We watched Left Behind, a 2014 film starring Nicolas Cage and actually nobody else that I had ever seen in anything else ever, possibly because their career crashed and burned after this. Leia Thompson, she's the mum in Back to the Future. And the the daughter was in Neighbours. That's about as good as it gets. Right. This film is a bit like The Leftovers. So perhaps that's why it was suggested to us, because obviously The Leftovers is brilliant and I love it. It's a film basically about a situation where a huge percentage of the population just disappears in the blink of an eye. And where The Leftovers was one of the greatest pieces of art of the 21st century so far, this is what I can only describe as a piece of fundamentalist Christian propaganda. And I'll tell you for why. It opens in an airport. It's obviously a Hollywood version of an airport. There's no crime babies. There's no people who got up at 4am and already hate the people that they're travelling with. And then breaks out a row about Jesus. As we all know happens all the time at airports, doesn't it? We all just start rowing about Jesus. Involved in this row about Jesus is a woman who is the daughter of Nicolas Cage. She probably has a name. Mickey, can you remember it? Chloe. Chloe. Her dad is a pilot played by Nicolas Cage and she runs into a journalist. He's called Cameron. I've written that down for no apparent reason. Book to his friends. Yeah. Who is the sort of guy that woos women with stories of death and destruction from around the world. So, bell end. And also, two minutes into a conversation with her goes, love that laugh. Fuck off, mate, you sleazy bastard. What's basically happened is she's come to the airport to meet Nicolas Cage because it's his birthday. Turns out he's arranged to go on a flight to London instead rather than hang around with his family because his wife has become an all-singing, all-dancing Jesus person. And he doesn't like it. I mean, I can't blame him. I wouldn't like it either. What I wouldn't do is then start conducting an extramarital affair with somebody that I work with, which is what he's doing. He's managed to get himself some U2 tickets in order to uh, sleep with one of the the flight attendants. I mean, who fucks for U2 tickets, really? Who does? I think think you're right. And it's very telling of the film that that is what it sees as an exciting night out. (laughs) Exactly. So he's on a flight going to London with this journalist, a very aggressive dwarf. <laughs> so, so angry. A woman who appears to be taking her daughter away from her father, who is a, a, a football star, from what I can gather. I mean, American football. A drug addict and a Muslim and some other people. I mention all of these things because they become important to the plot later. Meanwhile, the daughter goes home to see her mum and they have a row about Jesus again. And there's a point at which she shouted, I did all of this to her mum. And I thought, I bet your mum paid for all of it, though, didn't she? So she's not likeable. She's supposed to be our heroine and she's already not likeable. She's already a bit of a screaming brat. Eventually what happens, there's this kind of like, woof, was all I can describe it as, woof. And loads of people disappear, loads, including all children. And they disappear in a really comical fashion. In The Leftovers, when they go, they go. In this, when they go, their clothes stay behind in a little pile like they're the, the Wicked Witch of the West. <laughs> Fully nude to heaven. Yeah, absolutely. So they're in a plane when this happens. Everybody goes slightly hysterical. 
And Nicolas Cage, at one point, he goes to the passengers, since we're past the point of no return, we're going to go back to America. And I thought, no, since we're not past the point of no return, and I thought, you fucking are, mate. This film was past <laughs> the point of return absolutely ages ago. The dialogue is absolutely appalling. The plot is ridiculous. The effects are bad. It's written by people who don't understand certain situations. Like the woman says, am I having a bad trip? I've had a bad trip. You don't fucking imagine that everyone disappears on an aeroplane. Um, (laughs) It has huge plot holes, huge. Like there's a point at which someone gets a gun out and somebody actually says, where did that gun come from? Nobody explains it. Nobody explains it. It's just moved on. There's one of the worst English accents I've ever heard in this. And then it ends with everyone looking up to the sky because that's where Jesus lives. And what this basically is, is an adaptation of a novel, a series of novels that are basically by some pretty hardcore Christians. And I find it really, really offensive. I find it offensive that they said, they pointed out that the dwarf gambled. That's why he got left behind. They pointed out that this woman was taking her daughter away from her father. That's why she got left behind. The drug addict left behind. Why was the Muslim left behind, people? I wonder. I wonder. Electric toothbrush. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah, racism. I'd say, yeah, I hated it. Absolutely fucking hated it. And I said one really good joke off mic to Mickey about it, and now I can't remember what it is, so I'm even more livid. (laughs) What did you make of it? So this wasn't a film that I chose. This was a listener film choice by Hayley Corney. I think... You know sometimes how you hear of, like, cursed things? I feel like this might be a cursed film that Hayley watched and then she had to pass it on to people to break that curse. <laughs> and so she did it to us, so thanks, Hayley. I hope you're okay. Um, it was... Well, from the from the beginning, there was, like, a 80s saxophone music. And I thought, I mean, first of all, Kenny G needs a bit of work, but it was shit. And it just set up for the fact that this is probably one of the worst films I've ever seen. Agreed. The thing I think that I took the most exception to was the portrayal of the dwarf on the plane. The actor, Martin Kleber, is from Pirates of the Caribbean. But this was just... I, it was really offensive. He's just the just an angry, angry man that is... He hates kids. He hates everyone. Anybody trying to help him out, he won't... Uh, you know kind of thank he's in first class so he's got nothing to be angry about and he just all the way through is an asshole and then it's like they were trying to set up a little bit of comedy between him and the muslim and then we find out the muslim's a nice man at the end because he's nice to the old lady not that nice lucy he didn't get to go to heaven heaven because you know he's a muslim um and he does also boot boot the dwarf down the, uh, yeah, the slide, the end, which was they hilarious. Yeah, just throw him off. And I think that is terrible. You know, the portrayal of, of, you know, dwarves, awful. I also thought as well, security was terrible because the lady managed to get on heroin and they got a gun. A gun. And like you say, nobody seems to know exactly why that happened. I looked this up and it has 1% on Rotten Tomatoes. And I th- that, <laughs> I think, is, is generous. And really, I mean, it's Nicolas Cage, so I was kind of expecting it to be a bit shit, but enjoyable. But Cage just looked like doughy of face, terrible of hair, and he just looked sad. Like, he, he realised that this was going to be a terrible film, but he just had to go with it. He kind of phones it in in like a, a one-tone performance and the only good thing about it is the, the film poster with his hair and his face facing the wrong way <laughs> what this reminded me of it's so poorly executed and it's so clearly pushing a message that it, it was a bit like somebody had made a film out of one of those you know legs akimbo those yeah. plays that they used to put on in the league of gentlemen that somebody had made a film out of that because <laughs> it was bad yeah So when I tell you my feelings about this film, I think the first thing I did is look at my wrist, at my bracelet, and I thought, what would Jesus do? Um, (laughs) I thought he he wouldn't watch it. He was a busy man and he'd have the right idea. 
the message that that God is the answer, God is the saviour, God works in mysterious ways, even gets rolled out at one point. I, I, I was I was too distracted by Nicolas Cage's bad die job to actually take it all in. It was awful, but I have ordered the soundtrack. <laughs> Just if people come to my house and I don't want them to be here, I'm going to play it. It was horrific. Saxophone, pan pipes, awful. The funny thing is, those things backfire enormously. I never, ever, ever wanted to take drugs so much as when I was watching this film. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was a bad trip. There's dialogue at the end. The last lines are, I think Book says, it looks like the end of the world. And then Chloe says, no, I'm afraid this is just the beginning. I checked my Netflix to see if there was any more coming. And luckily it's right at the end. I was like, thank <laughs> the Lord. So just... Left behind yeah. two, colon, still fucking waiting. Well, this has been ad- adapted before this book series. And uh, there is a plan to continue making another film, even though it's shit. Because I actually genuinely think it's not made for people to watch. I think it's made for a specific audience. It's like Battlefield Earth was yeah. about Scientology and wasn't really meant for the rest of us. 2020 feels like Left Behind 2, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, and but I don't know how you could start with two basic premises that, that are almost exactly the same. Like I say, the leftovers and this. I mean, the names are almost the same, and come away with two such extraordinarily different messages from it. Two words for you, Hannah Dunleavy: Nicholas Cage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can you imagine if he'd been Kevin Garvey? Oh my goodness! Can oh, you I don't imagine? want to. I don't want to. You wouldn't have enjoyed all those naked scenes so much, would you, Mick? No, don't ruin my... They're all I've got in 2020, Hannah. Don't ruin them. <laughs> okay, I have one, two, three, four, five, six. I think I've got three. I think I've got five. Go, Go on. on then, Lucy. So, I've got piss poor English accent, as Hannah's just said. Well, yes. quite. I have perfect makeup throughout. So the, the lady <sighs> that was on the... Um, she was Nick Cage's bit on the side. She went from having perfect red lipstick for about half the way through then it turned to a lovely pink gloss that's all i was concentrating on really and then it went back to red and then back to pink but she looked glamorous all the way through which i would say is bullshit yep sexually disheveled all the way through this disaster saved our relationship possibly father daughter relationship at the end yeah yeah event that is too important to cancel nicholas cage's character getting off with the um the air hostess. Do we think that Bono was taken up or not? Just to, just out of interest. Do you think that 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 I U2 think that concert went concert ahead? Went oh, ahead. Yeah, definitely. I think it went ahead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think he's like the pastor, the pastor who doesn't go because he said the words, he could recite them by heart, but he didn't feel them, Hannah. Mm. That's what I get when I listen to you too. He doesn't feel them. <laughs> and my last one is Brexit analogy. So. It's a Brexit analogy because they're being led unwittingly into a certain disaster by a doughy-faced idiot with bad hair and a penchant for infidelity. And the people that voted for Brexit are like the people who disappear, but they don't go to heaven. It's just because they're all going to die pretty soon, Um, which leaves the rest of us (laughs) in a post-apocalyptic world picking up the pieces. (laughs) I mean, you put a lot of effort into that one. There's no way I'm going to deny it. Thanks. I have old person sacrifice because obviously all of the children went to heaven and, and all the adults were left on a burning earth. Thing you can't do, meaning you would definitely die in this film. Believe in Jesus. Um, <laughs> so many traffic jams. My eyes, the CGI, there was a burning car in a car park scene that just was appalling. Um, that takes us to four. It was all going so well until I sprained my ankle slash revealed that I was a Muslim. <laughs> And adopt brace <laughs> position. So I have six. Yep. Yeah, I have, but I have to find my son slash get to my daughter slash find my little brother. Even though he disappeared while I was literally hugging him, I'm going to check he's not just slipped off home. Bizarre. Mid-disaster punch-up because uh, there's, there's a lot of aggression going on. I suppose I could have Captain willing to go down with ship slash plane slash building because he wasn't really given much choice, but he was willing to to do the best he could. But my tenuous one is Pet Survives Carnage because at some point there is a dog and he appears to still be there. So I still lose and that's fine. Fair enough. I'm going to choose something 
I don't care if anybody <laughs> suggested anything. I always thought listeners listeners listen to us because they like us. Apparently no, not. She was totally trolling us. Definitely. Yeah. All I can say is that a listener called Dana Hunlevy oh. has, <laughs> has been in contact to suggest two films that might be good to watch. Either the 1950s A Night to Remember, which is an early Titanic film with Barbara Stanwyck, or... Is it Barbara Stanwyck? Doesn't matter. Or Meteor, which is a 1970s film starring Sean Connery, which got reviews approximately the same as The Swarm. Yeah, that would, one. I, that my one. hand is firmly up in the yeah, air. That yes, please. Meteor, it is. Meteor. Yes, I'm only borrowing your Humvee. So that's my Sean Connery <laughs> that impression. Was that's the end. Yeah. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.